Thank you, Alicia, and good morning. Everybody hear me? All right, good morning. So if you noticed, Alicia said, good morning, Terra Nova Troy. And the reason she says Terra Nova Troy is because we have three Terra Nova churches, in case you didn't know. There's one here in Troy. There's one that was planted in Saratoga, New York, and there was one that was planted in North Adams, Massachusetts. And if you're looking around this morning and you're noticing there's a lot of missing faces, especially younger faces, that's because about 15 of our young adults went to go support uh, one of our own, Kyle Maureen, who's preaching for the first time at the Terra Nova Church in North Adams. And so that's where they are, and we love and support all of our churches, and we pray for them uh, as well as the churches that the Lord has established around the world. So we are, in fact, back in Matthew, and as... Um, as you heard that text read this morning and as I thought about it and was trying to prep this week for it, I got a little bit poetic. You mind hearing a poem I wrote about this passage of this strange encounter Jesus had with a fig tree? Here's what I came up with. Lord of life, a rare occurrence we see. Death from your words so rare. Possessed pigs to watery graves and this one fig tree. Life and death under your sovereign care. True affection for God and people, the fruit of your production. Lying leaves feigning godliness, too easily we give in to the seduction. A life without your Holy Spirit leads to present and future destruction. Your chosen nation spoke your name going through the motions. The majority not truly listening to what you say. So in your mercy, help your church today. Turn us from self-confidence and empty strutting. In faith may we grasp that without the gospel and your constant presence, like withered branches, we can do nothing. So, I have to give you a little bit of background before getting into the text, because we just had a whole summer, summer in the Psalms, and unfortunately the summer is starting to fade into uh, the fall. And we are leaving the Summer of Psalms series and we're entering back into the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is about the king revealing the kingdom of God. That's what it's all about. The king, Jesus, bringing, revealing God's kingdom. And where we left off in, gospel, in Matthew's Gospel was when Jesus entered into Jerusalem triumphantly on a donkey in humility, being received warmly, people praising him. And when he gets there, he responded in a way people didn't expect, though. When he gets to the temple, instead of supporting what the religious leaders were doing at the time and how the temple was being used, instead of supporting it, he literally shook things up. He starts flipping over tables. He shouts out, you've turned my father's house of prayer into a den of thieves, into a den of robbers, saying that he wasn't really the one overturning tables, overturning the temple. The people had already done that. They had turned what was supposed to be a place of approaching God and worshiping God and teaching the nations about who God was. It had become a place, a marketplace of greed. And the people that were approaching Jesus at that time as he entered into the temple were not the people you might expect, but was the blind, the lame, children shouting out, Hosanna, son of David. And a lot of people didn't like that, including the Pharisees. And they're about to do something about it, something very evil, which we're going to talk about as we continue through the gospel. So here's the main idea we have for the text today in Matthew 21. 
our famished king gets frustrated with a fig tree and then calls for faith. That's what I saw when I read the passage. Our famished king gets frustrated with a fig tree and then, then there's this call for faith. So let's, let's talk about it. Let's learn from this text what we can understand, what we understand about God, what he's revealing, how we're supposed to respond to what he's revealing to us, and then how we act in this world that God has made. Please remember again, I, this takes effort. I know for me every time on church on Sunday, we're not, we're not coming here just to hear songs about God and to hear a message and to, to talk with each other. We are here to engage with the living God. I don't want to just go through the motions and, and sing and listen and do this. I want to be part of what God is doing. I want to hear from him. And I hope that we have that same passion. What is he teaching us? What is he revealing to us? And how does he want us to respond in this world? So we're going to look at, first of all, our famished king. Here's, here's the direction we're going to go today. We're going to talk about our famished king in verse 18. And then secondly, this curious event where he gets frustrated with a fig tree in verse 19. Let's try to make sense of that. And then finally, this call to faith in verses 20 to 22. So, first of all, our famished king, verse 18, look at that verse again. It says, in the morning, as he was returning to the city, to Jerusalem, he became hungry. Jesus was hungry. Is anyone hungry right now? <laughs> Sorry, I can't, I don't actually have any food for you right now. And we didn't bring, it's not like a potluck Sunday or something, but I do have a food for thought. <laughs> okay. I was not expecting that, but it was pretty good. <laughs> Jesus was hungry. So I have a question. Don't, don't shout this out, but I have a question. Was Jesus God or was Jesus human? Is Jesus God or is Jesus human? I really hope that, that we understand the answer to this question because it's kind of a trick question. He is the God-man. He's both. He's fully human, he's fully God. He's hungry here because like everyone in this room, when we don't eat for a while, we start to feel weak, maybe a little bit, you know, uh, doozy, loozy, woozy, there it is. And, and, we want, and we want food, we get hungry. Jesus was hungry. He was fully human, okay? Two natures, the divine nature and the human nature. And all of us, are, when we think about Jesus, we're going to tend to lean one way or the other, emphasizing his humanity or his divinity. But he is fully both. Now, there's a lot of wrong beliefs about the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. So I want to talk about that just a little bit. There's a belief called docetism that believes that Jesus was fully God, but not man. He was a, he was a deity, but not a human being. Then there's Arianism, another heretical belief and teaching, that Jesus is, was a good teacher, but not God. Both heretical beliefs and teachings. So I want to read to you a little bit, an excerpt from the Fourth Ecumenical Council, where our church fathers got together to counter heretical teachings at the time. And this one in Chalcedon, the Chalcedonian Creed, is about addressing the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. And they get the creed from the scripture. So let me start to read the creed to you. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the same, perfect in Godhead and perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, okay? So the quote goes on to say, two natures, divine, human, unchangeably, indivisibly, not partly one and partly the other, both, Jesus, one and the same son. And they get that from the Bible. And if you want to ask me, I'm about to to talk to you a bit about a bunch of examples that talk about Jesus, the human, and then some examples of Jesus as revealed as God himself, God in the flesh. And so if you want the examples where I got this in scripture, come ask me. But first, let's talk about some examples that the Bible gives us. Jesus as a human being. He had a human body. He was born into the world like babies are born. Human body. Nobody doubted this is a human. He grew in his childhood physically like a human. He was hungry like we see in this passage. He was thirsty. He felt fatigue. He had scars on his body. He died. He had a human body. He also had a human mind. He learned. It says in Hebrews that he learned obedience through suffering. Hebrews also tells us that he was tempted in all the ways we are in our human Mind. He had a human body, human mind. Jesus was human. But he was also God. And we see that throughout the Gospels and the Scriptures as well. The Bible says God's kingdom is his kingdom. God's angels are his angels. He forgives sins. Only God can do that. He knows people's thoughts at times. He's the king and judge of the world. His words are on the level of God's words. In Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, When he said, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He's eternal. He said, before Abraham was, I am. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said that he and the Father are one. He accepts worship. And his name is written right alongside the Holy Spirit and the Father in Matthew 28 when it talks about baptism, which we are going to do on September 12th. Sorry about that. It didn't rain, but it was supposed to. Hurricane, okay? But we're going to do baptisms on September 12th. Be there, Grafton Lake State Park. So his name is right alongside the Father and the Holy Spirit and talking about being baptized as a follower of Jesus. We have many people getting baptized. Jesus, human. Jesus, God, both. The God-man. And that's really important because Jesus, the human, stood in our place, lived the perfect life as a human being in this world that we live in in thought, in life, in action, all of it, fully devoted to God. Our substitute stood in our place. And then God, Jesus, the God-man, only an infinite one can endure and pay the price of the infinite wrath of God because of our mistakes and our errors, our sins. Jesus, the God-man. So don't, don't miss this. He's walking back into Jerusalem, the one who created food, and he's hungry. Our famished king returns to the city of Jerusalem. But the story goes on in verse 9. Our famished king gets frustrated with a fig tree. Verse 19, let me read that for you. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. What is going on here? What is happening? Okay, I have a bunch of questions. What happened? When did it happen? Why did it happen? And well, how does that relate to my life? What happened? When did it happen? 
why did it happen, and, well, why did that relate to our life today? So to talk about this, I need a fig tree. And you literally have to do nothing. Paul, do you mind holding this? Okay, you can just stay there. Just hold that. So Paul Caprera is now a fig tree, okay? <laughs> so act like a fig tree, don't move, but you got your leaf. He's got his leaves, okay? So I'm going to start actually with the when did this happen, because it's important for the details of the story. It says, by the wayside, Jesus sees a fig tree from the distance. When did this happen? This happened, Mark's gospel tells us, not during fig season, as in the trees were not expected to be growing figs. First of all, has anyone had figs before? They are delicious. I just put fig spread on my bread the other day. Mmm, it was so good. Homemade bread, oh, forget about it. Figs are even better in Israel. If you ever get the chance to go, go. Go to Israel. You can miss a bunch of Sundays here. Go there. Check it out. Figs. Anyway, so it's not during fig season. The trees, the, the trees are not expecting, we're not expecting the trees to grow figs. So from a distance, Jesus sees that fig tree has leaves on it. So why, why is that important? Because trees, fig trees, with their leaves, the leaves develop either at the same time or after the fruit is developed. And so when you see the leaves, the tree is advertising, I have fruit on me. So Jesus is hungry, remember? He's famished. And he sees a fig tree with leaves on it. It's supposed to have fruit on it because there's leaves. Everyone with me? It's advertising, I have fruit. So what happened? When did it happen? Not during fig season. What happened? Jesus sees it, walks over. I won't go all the way, but he went all the way to the tree there's no fruit there. That tree's doing nothing. It's useless, Paul Caprera. Useless. <laughs> Just sitting there. No fruit. So what happens? Does Jesus walk away? No. What did we just read? What does he do to it? Curses it. He says, you know what, tree? You're done. You're cursed. May, may no fruit ever grow from you ever again. And he curses the fig tree. Thank you, Paul, for being a fig tree. You can keep that. I'll grab it later. Okay. So he curses it. Why does he do that? And first of all, it's not the first time that the Israelite nation has been related to a fig tree. Because we're, we're, the, the next question is, why did he do that? Because he's doing what's called a sign act, a visual sermon. It's not because Jesus was hangry, right? He's hungry and he's just like taking it out. Have you ever just taken out your anger because you're hungry on inanimate objects, you know? That's not what he's doing. He's not holding the tree morally responsible. How dare you, tree? You're showing that you should have fruit and you don't, and so I'm gonna curse you because you're morally responsible for this. Not what was happening. So why did he do it? He did it because he's showing the disciples this visual sermon like this tree that's, that's advertising it has fruit but doesn't, the nation of Israel. You guys follow? You know where I'm going with this? The nation that was chosen by God to know him and represent him to the other nations, to perform the sacrificial system, pointing ahead to the sacrifice that God would make, they are showing, they're pretending, they're feigning godliness. They're acting as if they're, they're religious, that they've got it all together, that they know God, but there's no tangible fruit. There's no proof of real faith that they have in the true and living God. And like I was saying, not the first time that God related the nation of Israel to a tree, to a vine that is not producing fruit. Jeremiah the prophet, 
chapter 8, Hosea chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 5. You're like, a, you're like a tree, you're like a vine that is not producing fruit. And so what does he do? He curses it. He ends it. May no fruit ever grow from you again. In 70 AD, the Romans come in, they're already there, but they destroy the temple, they scatter the people, the nation of Israel that once was with their temple will never again be like that. The temple's destroyed, the sacrificial system is over. The covenant God made with the Israelites, with Moses at Mount Sinai, it was never meant to be forever. It was a conditional covenant that lasted for a period of time. God was doing something better. God was creating a new way for people to approach and know God, and it's not through a building, it's not through a system, it's through direct access to God himself through Jesus. You all following? He ended that tree. The nation itself was about to end as the, as the one people representing God in the world through that system, through that theocracy, through the sacrificial system. Okay, so what happened? When did it happen? Why did it happen? Hopefully we have a, a bit of a better grasp here. He's pointing us toward the new covenant that he was creating through his body and blood, Jesus, to direct access to him. So, well, so what? How does that relate to our life here and now? Because maybe you're sitting here saying, okay, but today, there's no chosen people today, right? And no one today is supposed to know God and reflect him to other people and help other people know him. And there's no temple today, right? So how does this relate? Well, wrong, wrong, wrong. There is. If you're here and you've confessed your sins to Jesus and you've asked him to be your Lord and your Savior, if you love Jesus, you're it. <laughs> you're the chosen people. That's what he tells us. First Peter, we're chosen. We, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3, are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of who Jesus is. And then, 2 Corinthians 5, we are ambassadors for God as Christ is appealing through us to others to know God and what he's done for us. We're his ambassadors. We're chosen, loved. Where's the temple? 1 <laughs> Corinthians 6, verse 9. You, church, are the temple of the Holy Spirit, not a building made with hands. God indwells his people. And do you know one of the things he does as he indwells his people and changes us, as we ex accept Christ and, and confess our sins, he makes fruit in us. What kind of fruit? Apples, oranges, bananas, strawberries, pineapples? No. Fruits, characteristics, signs that we belong to God, that we are children of God. So what kind of fruit are we talking about? Galatians 5 tells us, here are the fruits of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. Lo I'm not going to go into detail, but just listen to these. Love, are these good things? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Are those things you want in your life? Those are things you can try to manufacture on your own strength, but love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those are fruits of the Holy Spirit of God. Those are the kind of characteristics and attributes that God works in you as you belong to him, as he works in your life, as he makes room in your heart and my heart. That's what he does. And you know what? He prunes that fruit. <laughs> Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
And even the best vines, the best branches, they get cut. They get pruned right up until the end. The Lord saves his people, us, makes us more like him, and there's evidence, there's fruit of it. There's fruit. So, our famished king gets frustrated with a fig tree. Hopefully that makes a little bit more sense. And then there's this interesting response from the disciples and a call for faith from the Lord in verses 20 through 22. So let's look at verses 20 through 22. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So, I want to talk to three potential groups of people. Those of us who don't pray. Those of us who demand, demand pray. And then hopefully most of us in this third camp that I'll talk about, that aren't demanding, that are praying, talk about that third camp. So, those of us that don't pray, what do I want to say to you? I would like to say, pray please. (laughs) Is that simple enough? But not because I'm asking you to. It's really not about me. I'm telling you that. Not about me. Jesus, what we just read, the words of the God-man, he's giving you this open invitation to talk to him. Open invitation to talk to him about the little things in your life, fig trees, big things, the mountains, all of it, everything in between, he wants you to talk to him. And you know what? He said a lot to you. In general revelation, that's what we see in creation. That's what we see people made in God's image that we have interactions with. There's a lot that God has spoken to us through this world and through people made in his image. There's a whole lot he's spoken to us through his word, Genesis through Revelation, special revelation. He said a lot to you. What more can he say? But he wants you to talk to him. The one who created you wants to have a relationship with you. In relationship, we talk to someone and they talk back to us and it goes back and forth, right? He wants you to talk to him. He wants you to talk to him. So, I have an acronym for what helps me talk to God because even as of yesterday, I've been a Christian a a while, you know, even as of yesterday, I have trouble at times talking with God. Does that surprise you? I hope it doesn't. I have difficulty at times praying, talking with God. What am I going to say? What am I going to bring up? And so here's this acronym that does help me from time to time. It's called ACTS. I don't have a slide for you. I'm encouraging those of you that don't do the, the notebook thing. I like to teach different things, so I encourage notebooks. But you don't have to bring a notebook. It's fine. Anyway, ACTS helps me pray. A, adoration. Acts. A is adoration. God wants you to talk to God about God, about his attributes, about what he has revealed to you. Talk to him about his eternality, that he doesn't change when everything else seems to change. That he has all power when I am powerless and I have all my limitations. He's limitless. Talk to him about his love, about his forgiveness, about his peace, about his joy, about the plan he has for this world and for us. Adore him. Talk to God about God. Adoration. Then you have C. That's confession. God wants us to talk to God about the mistakes we've made. 
You know, he's the safest person we can go to with our mistakes. <laughs> he wants us to confess them. What we know we've done wrong, and even the things that we don't know we've done that have hurt ourselves, other people, God, this world. He wants us to go to him with our confessions. A-C. Then you have T. That's thanksgiving. We have so very much to be thankful for. Amen? <laughs> we have so much to be thankful for. Even when life's really hard, I bet you can create pages and pages of things that you're grateful for. That's T, thanksgiving. Then S, A-C-T-S. S is the supplication. God wants you to talk to God about your requests, about all the different things in your life, what you want to change, what you think should happen, how someone's struggling in your life and you want God to do something and act in a way that you can see. Anything, any request you have, from the big to the small, all of it, he wants you to go to him with your requests. And what we're seeing here in chapter 21 and this call to faith that Jesus gives is he's saying no matter what your requests are, from as small as the fig tree to as big as the mountain, all of it and everything in between, go, come to me with your requests. He's urging us to ask him, to bring our requests to him. I'm going to read to you a two-part quote from Charles Spurgeon. Here's the first part. This gives us, this chapter 21, these verses we just read, this gives us a grand checkbook on the bank of faith which we may use without stint. Blank check. God's saying, come to me with all your requests. So why don't we ask him more than we do? If he gives us this blank checkbook saying, come to me with everything, ask me about everything from big to small, why do you think it is that we don't ask as often as we could? Why do we sometimes wait to ask, ask God, have him like ninth on the list of people we go to when we have a request about something? Why do we do that? I want to give you two potential reasons. Here's the first one. We're too busy. Or at least we think we're too busy. Take a good look at your schedule and you'll see how much time you actually waste on things. <laughs> but we think we're too busy, or maybe we do have really busy schedules. I get it. But here's what we're saying to God when we say we're too busy to talk to you. We're saying, I have my life together. I got it figured out. My time, resources, the people I know, the connections I have, I'm fine. I don't need to talk to you. Too busy. And here's just a little caveat. When we do have busy schedules, and you might look at your day and it's planned out and it's like, man, from the moment I wake up, baby's crying, you know, I got this to do, I got that to do, I got all this stuff till the end of the day and I put my head in, there's so much. I don't have time to pray. It can be a real, seemingly genuine thought. But let me tell you something. When you take the time and you set it aside to talk to God, even though it's not productive, <laughs> big air quotes, productive to get the things done that you want to get done, what you're doing is you're showing him you trust him with your day. You have faith that he's able with the remainder of your day that you didn't set aside <laughs> to talk to him. Even though you might feel a little bit more pressed, you are now forced to rely on God more than you did if you didn't take that time to pray. Does that make sense? Okay. One reason we don't pray, we don't ask, is because we don't have enough time. Here's the second reason, and here's, this is what the text is, is, is hinting at for us this morning. Not hinting, saying. Because of our little faith. Four times earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, remember Jesus said to the disciples, why do you have little faith? And here again, he's getting at that reason. Little faith. So why do we have little faith in God? 
There's a bunch of reasons I'm sure we could talk about. I just want to give you one this morning. Why do we have little faith? Here's one potential reason. An attitude of cynicism. Cynicism is the the spirit of the age of our culture. Here's what cynicism means. It's an attitude of mistrust. And a lot of what I'm about to tell you I got from Paul Miller's book called A Praying Life, which I highly recommend about prayer. Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life. He says, let's talk about cynicism, this attitude of disbelief, and let's talk about the cure for cynicism, which is a childlike attitude. Not childish, childlike. Let's talk about cynicism, an attitude of mistrust. Now, it makes sense in this world to have some measure of mistrust, does it not? Are people always trustworthy? No. Are organizations always trustworthy? Government? No, 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 no. It's not always trustworthy. So having a measure of distrust and, and kind of skepticism makes sense. But listen, not toward God. That cynical attitude we can have about people and about organizations It doesn't make sense to bring that attitude of mistrust toward the one perfect God who is fully honest, trustworthy, and hears our prayers. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about cynicism and then the cure for it, a childlike attitude. An attitude of cynicism believes that God doesn't have my best interest at heart. He's two-faced. You can't trust him. Sounds like the first lie in the Garden of Eden. An attitude of cynicism focuses on the negative, the negative in ourselves, the negative in other people. They always have an angle. You can't trust them. An attitude of being negative, thinking about ourselves, other people, and the world. Negative, negative, negative. Negative Nancy. All right. An attitude of, sorry if your name's Nancy. It's a fine name. An attitude of cynicism has an attitude that looks reality in the face, calls it a phony, takes pride in its insight, and then pulls back. Looks at reality, calls it phony, takes pride in that insight, and pulls back. An attitude of cynicism says, I see through that. I see through that person. I know what they're doing. I see through my family. I see through the church. I see through that organization. I see through it all. And do you know what happens when you see through everything? What do you see? Nothing. What do you commit yourself to? Nothing. It's the coward's way out. An attitude of cynicism says God doesn't answer prayers. And whatever happens, if some Christian thinks that God answered their prayer, it would have happened anyways. That would have happened anyways, whether you said so or not, whether you asked or not. An attitude of cynicism is bitter and focuses on the fall. All right, enough with cynicism. (laughs) Let's talk about the cure for it, a childlike attitude. A childlike faith in the Lord. A childlike attitude believes that my heavenly father knows what's best for me. He knows what he's doing and he's working toward not my my bad or my evil or to hurt me. He's working toward my good. An attitude of being childlike focuses on the positive. Not being unaware or ignorant of the evil in my heart and your heart and all the evils in this world, but focuses, chooses to focus on the positive in myself, in you, in other people, and in the world. And that takes effort. That's why Paul has to say in Philippians chapter 4, think about the things, take effort to think about the things that are pure, honorable, just. True, honorable, just. 
pure, lovely, commendable, whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise, think about those things. Take effort to think about the good things in life and be thankful for those. A childlike attitude looks reality in the face, again, not ignorant of evil and of the fall, but instead of pulling back, it presses in. It, it fosters and pushes toward relationship with God, with other people, with the world that God has placed us in. A childlike attitude says that God does answer our prayers. He does. In ways that I ask for, often in ways that I didn't ask for, but is better because he knows better than I do. And I don't have to understand how it all works together. My God who is outside of time, I'm not going to understand how the prayers I prayed 20 minutes ago are being answered in two years from now and how all the different dimensions and how it has to come together for that to take place. I don't have to understand all that. But I have faith in the God who does it. A childlike attitude is thankful for the good, even for the bad, knowing that God is working those things to refine us, to prune us, to make us more like Jesus. It focuses on the resurrection and restoration and instead of pulling back, presses into life, hopefully, because we have a Savior who is restoring us who's making all things new, who's working in me and us and the world. And so we're hopeful. You see the difference? The cure to that cynical heart, always doubting an attitude of mistrust, is to have that childlike trust and faith in our God. So what is all this about? Remember, two potential reasons why we don't pray. And I'm still talking to that first group who aren't praying. <laughs> why don't we do that? Because we have little time or because we're, 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 we're cynical, right? We have little faith, or maybe no faith, and so we're not praying. Okay, second group of people. I'd like to talk to those who are praying, but are doing what I call demand praying. What is demand praying? Is it, is it asking God, or is it more telling him what he should do? Those who are demanding. So I'm gonna read to you the second part of Charles Spurgeon's quote, that 19th century theologian. The first part, remember, says this. Matthew 21, this gives us the grand checkbook on the bank of faith, which we may use without stint. But here's the second part of the quote. This is not possible concerning things not promised or things not according to God's divine will. What is he saying? He's saying that we don't just rip out the verses in Matthew 21 out of context from the rest of the Gospel of Matthew or the New Testament or the Bible. Jesus already laid the foundation of prayer in Matthew 6. He said, when you pray, pray like this. And he goes on and he says, we pray, your will be done, like the Lord's will, in heaven, in, on earth as it is in heaven. I got it. <laughs> God's will, right? Asking the Lord's will to be done. And so we understand that God's sovereignty, the fact that he's in control of everything, he's not He's not forced to yield or somehow his sovereignty supplanted by my faith or your faith. We don't call the shots. We don't demand God to do different things. God is the one in control. And that's a really good thing, right? Remember in, in John chapter 15, Jesus says, if you abide in me, if we abide in Jesus and his words abide in us, then ask for whatever you wish and it will happen. As in we're praying what God's will is. We're praying what God wants. We often don't know what he wants or what his will is. But as we abide in him, as we become more like Jesus, we start praying more 
according to his will. 1 John chapter 5 says, verse 14, this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, it will happen. So, the true freedom in prayer is not that everything I ask for is going to happen. That's a pretty terrifying reality. You know what a re- reality would be like if everything you asked for happened? Can you imagine 15 years ago, everything you were asking for, if it happened, what would that look like today in your life? Think about that. No, the true freedom in prayer is that it's protected by God's will. So, if you remember back in Matthew 17, I had this whole you know, pendulum of not praying and demanding and you know, all that. And so, similar thing I'm going to say now. Don't be over here and not praying at all. And don't be over here and saying, whatever happens is God's will, so I'm not going to ask. He wants us to passionately and genuinely go to him with all of our requests, pour out your hearts to God, trust him at all times, and then believe that his response, whether it's yes, no, or wait, is what's best for you and the people you're praying about and the things you want to see change and all of it. Tell him how you feel. Trust his response. So, I talked to those of you for a little bit who don't pray, hopefully nobody here, but if that's you, please feel free. Come talk to me, come talk to anyone you see up here leading, we will, we will talk to you about what prayer is and, and the God who wants to talk to you, but those who don't pray, other camp, those who are demand praying, and then finally, very quickly, this third camp, which I really hope is most of us, who aren't demanding God, telling him what to do, and at the same time are talking to him and wanting his will to be done. Maybe you're in that camp and maybe you've been struggling for a little while. I just want to talk directly to you for a second. You've been struggling because you've been asking God sincerely, genuinely, you want his will to happen, but you don't understand why he's not answering your prayer for something, not in the way that you expect him to see, and you're struggling. I have one request for you, one suggestion. Ask God today to send someone into your life. Maybe they're already in your life. But ask him that a conversation will start with somebody who is going through or has already gone through something similar that you are going through. And trust that, that, per, that God's going to bring that person to, give, uh, to have a conversation to say things that you need to hear. And ask God to do that. If that's you today, that's my suggestion. So that's the third camp. So today, all of us, Let's not demand him. Let's do, pray, talk to him. And let's continue to get, the know, get to know the one whose life and character never produced a bad apple. The perfect human being, Jesus. Let's get to know him. But more than just human, God himself in the flesh. Jesus the God-man. When we, want to, when we want to know more about what it means to be human and how to act and what to do, we look to Jesus. And when we want to know what it's like to know God and what God is like, we also look to Jesus. And when we want to bear fruit, the characteristics that God wants us to display and have for ourselves, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control that come from the Holy Spirit of God, when we want those things, we again look to Jesus. We abide in him. He's the one that gives those. And when our hearts get cynical as they're bound to happen, where we have that attitude of mistrust toward God, 
Can we again say, can we again remember that Jesus withered on the cross for us? Jesus took the curse that we have deserved and piled up because of our mistakes and how we've hurt ourselves, other people, God, and this world. Jesus withered on the cross. Jesus died in our place. Jesus took the curse because of our waywardness. And let that thought, the gospel, the presence of Jesus, cure that cynical heart of ours. And again, have that childlike faith and wonder for our King. I'm going to read you that poem one more time, then our band's going to come up. We're going to continue to worship him in song and in communion. Lord of life, a rare occurrence we see. Death from your words so rare. Possess pigs to watery graves in this one fig tree. Life and death under your sovereign care. True affection for God and people, the fruit of your production. Lying leaves, feigning godliness, too easily we give in to the seduction. A life without your Holy Spirit leads to present and future destruction. Your chosen nation spoke your name, going through the motions. The majority not truly listening to what you say. In your mercy, help your church today. Turn us from self-confidence and empty strutting. In faith may we grasp. Without the gospel and your constant presence, like withered branches, we can do nothing. Would you pray with me? Lord, your word revealed a bit of a, a, bit of a strange story today to us. A story about a hungry king, a tree without fruit, a people without faith, or little faith. God, you planned all along to give yourself the sacrifice, fully human, fully God. Not human become God, but God become human. You took on the frailties of humankind. You were born into this world, this distorted, cursed, hurting, sinful world. And you died in our place. Lord, you want worshipers of spirit and of truth. Those who approach you, Lord, in faith, in childlike wonder, and belief in who you are and what you've done for us. God, continue to prune us. Develop those fruits of your Holy Spirit. Make us more like your son. We can't do it on our own. We need each other. Most of all, we need you. God, call us once again. Cure the cynical hearts we have in ourselves and those around us. This attitude of mistrust and skepticism. God, may we give up. May we give up trying to figure everything, else, everything out on ourselves. Trying to succeed in life on our own merit and our own doing. And say, Lord, you are my God and my Savior the one who created me, the one who forgives me, the one who cares for me, the one who has a future for me. Thank you, Lord, for doing that in us, in your church. Would you do it in more? And may we make more and better disciples that follow you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.